Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. Good morning. All right. Did you bring with you your journaling Bible? Yeah, did you get one of these last week? If you didn't get one last week, we have more in the lobby and you can grab one today while you're here. You're going to want it. It has 1st, 2nd Peter and Jude in it. We're going to use 2nd Peter in it for the next seven weeks. We'll do a study in 2nd Peter. Uh, I have been just like deep in it for the last couple of weeks and I am learning and I am being encouraged so much by what I read here. And this morning as we're singing songs, I'm just the thing that, that I keep thinking as we're singing is some of the stuff that we're singing and that we claim to believe just sounds really audacious to an outside world. And it requires uh, an amount of faith that isn't small. And I, my, I, I guess my greatest hope as we study the, the book of Second Peter would be that your, your faith would be encouraged. Uh, that you would have courage to have bold faith as we study over the next seven weeks. So uh, I want to make sure that you follow along with us and you don't miss anything that we do during this time. Since we're in a new spot in the Bible, uh, I wanted to give us a little bit of a, just a, a primer, a context on what Second Peter is about, who it's from and, and who it's to and all those kinds of things so that we have our mindset as we progress for the next couple of months. But let's start here. Do you know who wrote Second Peter? Peter, that's good. Not everyone agrees on that. I'm glad that you do. Some people said it was Peter Jr. because it was Second Peter, but that would be Peter the Second. This is Second Peter. Uh, Peter, we believe, authored it because in the first verse it says, from Simon Peter. And also a few verses later he talks about being present, being live and in person at the transfiguration of Jesus on the holy mountain. And when we go back to Matthew 17, we read and we see that Peter and James and John were the three people that Jesus took with him to that moment. So we think it's Peter. And when you get to chapter 3, verse 1, you also find that he writes, this is the second letter that I'm writing to you, which kind of begins to point us back to his first epistle, to 1 Peter. And so we think that Peter wrote it. Do we know who he wrote it to? Some of you are looking and you're going, it's got to be there in the opening line, but it's not this time. We don't get that cheat sheet. But if we look at uh, chapter 3, verse 1, it says it is the second letter I've written. So we go back to the first letter he's written. And in chapter 1, verse 1 of 1 Peter, it says, To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are, in simpler terms, who are Christians scattered all throughout the Roman Empire. That's who Peter is writing and sending this letter that will be circulated and be passed around to Christians throughout the Roman Empire. So he's writing to the same people he wrote to in 1 Peter. And if you go to 1 Peter, early on he says, I know that you're suffering trials of varied kinds right now. And by the time he gets to chapter 4 of 1 Peter, he's looking ahead into the future and beginning to kind of watch where things are going. And he says, oh, and I can see, I can tell that things are going to get much worse before they get better. And now that has happened. That's why he writes 2 Peter, because things have in fact gotten worse and have not yet gotten better. And so he's writing to them to give them courage to strengthen their faith during these days. Now, the stuff that they're going through during this time is not exactly the same as the stuff that we're going through. We want to always put ourselves in the story and go, oh, that's, that's just like us. And sometimes it is kind of like us and sometimes it isn't. I don't think it is very unfamiliar to you. Uh, give you a kind of a snapshot of what the world looked like in the Roman Empire at the time that Peter wrote this. It was a season, an era of time in which the Roman Empire seemed to be imploding in on itself. I don't know if that feels 
familiar at all. Um, at this time, there was incredible political division. Know if that feels awkward or uncomfortable to anyone at all. Uh, there was economic crisis happening at the time due to the great fire in Rome in 64 AD, which was started by Nero, the, em- the emperor, uh, probably the most awful emperor that Rome has ever had, one that had his own wife and his own mother executed. Uh, so he was not a very nice guy, and he started the great fire in Rome in 64 AD, and as a part of a political cover up, he said the Christians started the fire. That's who, that's who did it. And so, as you could imagine, persecution on the Christians began to be intensified. And it wasn't in, in a way that you might experience where you're, maybe just your voice or your opinion is dismissed. Like, oh, that's that ridiculous Jesus stuff. It wasn't that they were just pushed to the side. But it was that their very lives were in danger at this time. In fact, many people think that Paul, who was in prison around the time that this was written, that Paul was executed as a part of the cover-up uh, of the great fire in Rome. And so that's the condition that they're living in at this time. It was a time of social upheaval because you know this as well as I do. When times get hard, people turn against each other, right? We've, we've seen that in our own day. And what would happen throughout the empire, because Rome was a very diverse place, is people who looked like each other and sounded like each other and thought like each other would align and turn against people who didn't look like them or sound like them or think like them. Does that sound at all familiar? Yes. So there were racial tensions and social tensions and family relationships were strained. Relationships throughout communities were stretched and strained during this time. But I want you to remember this. In the middle of hearing this, in the middle of maybe trying to make a connection to our day, I want you to hear and be reminded of Romans 6, verse 12, which says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, against rulers, against the powers, against the fat forces of darkness. It's against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. This means that amidst all of the chaos that's going on in their day and ours, it is important for us to remember that it's not just physical and social battles that are being fought, but there are spiritual battles that are being fought. And that there is a real enemy, we call him Satan, who absolutely loves all of this stuff that we just described. And he is behind the scenes pulling the strings of all of the chaos and enjoying every moment of it. And it's important for us to remember that as we look here. Now, I want you to see how Paul approached, or how, sorry, how, I'm going to say Paul a lot throughout this series. And you guys can just laugh it off because I realized how much I preach Paul and how little I preach Peter. It's just going to slip. But I want you to see how Peter approaches his audience, his readers at this moment. It's a lot like this book. If you've ever read this book, we're going on a bear hunt. Do you know this book? And we know this book very well with four kids. We know this book, I mean, too well. It's a little sickening. But this family, this delightful, sweet little family decides they're going on a bear hunt, which does not sound like a good time with children, but they, for some reason, are going to do this. In fact, they say, we're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. And then page after page, they run into obstacles. The first one that I put up here is, oh, no, mud. It's thick, oozy mud. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh, no, we got to go through it. That's right. You've got to go through it. And page after page, another obstacle. There's the grass, the long wavy grass. You can't go over it. You can't go under it. Oh no, you've got to go through it. And this is what happens throughout the entire book until they find the bear and they run from the bear all through the obstacles again, get back in their bed and say, we're never going on a bear hunt again. Peter treats the, the Christians of this day kind of like this book. The pressure is on the Christians Things are hard and getting harder. Things are dark and getting darker. And he says, guess what? You can't go over it. 
You can't go under it. You can't try to skirt around it and be untouched by it. The fact remains, you're in this world. The darkness is there. You've got to go through it. And that's what he's going to do is he's going to try to help us know how to face the dark stuff, the hard stuff, the complex stuff, the broken stuff that lies right in front of us and know how to walk through it, how to go through it as the the people of God. Uh, As a way of a kind of a big picture over our study, things, themes are things that we will look at throughout our study. There are three big ideas that he kind of encapsules. One is he reminds us that in Christ... In Christ, we have everything that we need for life to face it just as it is. And that's a theme that we'll look at today and begin to talk, talk about today. Second reminder that he gives us is that as Christians, we're not called out of the world. Or in other words, according to the Bear Hunt book, we're not called to go around or over or under or all of the problems. But we're actually called into the world on mission. That's what our role is. We're not called out of the world, but into the world on mission. And a third reminder that we're going to find throughout this study is that having a right view of what's ahead shapes our view of what's right now. Or in other words, if we can get a clear head and have a real strong faith, a belief in what God promises is true for those who belong to him, it will help us to begin to see and reason and think through the things that we're facing right now and have a surer foot and a surer standing as we go through life. So these are big themes that we're going to touch on over the next seven weeks uh, that kind of, will gu- kind of will guide us through our study. But I wanted to do something just a little, little scary. If, if one of you would be willing, as we're starting a new study of a new book of the Bible, would one of you be willing just to out loud pray for our study? Like right now, standing where you are, just offer a prayer for our church. Can somebody do that for us? I will be willing to, but I'd love for you to. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, Patty. Amen. Thank you for that. That may be a new tradition. Be on the lookout when we start a new study and be ready to volunteer. Patty's my hero today. Who, by the way, this is for free. Patty started a Bible study for young women in our church this morning, third, fourth, and fifth graders. And I was listening outside the door. And you are phenomenal. Thank you for leading today. All right. So if you haven't yet, grab your Bible to 2 Peter, starting in chapter 1. This is where we're going to look. It's a good place to start. We want to talk about um, how Peter opens this letter Because what he does is he points us to the thing that I think is probably on our minds all of the time when we begin to see trouble or darkness or the bad stuff begin to unfold. How many of you, when you see the bad stuff starting to happen, you begin to wonder where God is in the middle of all of it? Have you wondered that? Or have you maybe said it out loud in a prayer or said it to somebody else when the bad stuff is happening and you're seeing it or you're living it and you go, where is God? In all of this, and what is God doing during this? What Peter does is he opens this way because when life is uncertain, the best thing that we can do is find God and find our place with God. And so here we are in 2 Peter 1, verse 1. By way of introduction, he says, This is Simon Peter, a bondservant 
and apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay. So what happens when we begin to see the brokenness and the complexity and the darkness and the difficulty? And things are dark and getting darker. Things are hard and getting harder. What do we do when, where do we start when we see the bad stuff start to unfold? Peter starts, if you pay attention, he starts with, who is God and who am I to God? What is God doing and where am I in the middle of this? And I want you to see how he does this. It's interesting. It's, it's almost just it, like layered or tucked into, hidden into this opening. He has two names he offers and two titles he offers. And it's interesting because if you look at 1 Peter, he just signs it Peter. But here he is purposeful in saying Simon Peter. And I, I almost wonder at this moment if there is a, an, a purpose or an intent that he has that he's intending to convey as he writes this letter. We do know that this is near the end of Peter's life. Verse 14 says that he knows that his own death is imminent, that it's coming. Peter's not a, a dense person. He made a lot of mistakes, but he's no fool, and he writes with great purpose, and the Holy Spirit is inspiring him. And you wonder if in this moment, as he's looking upon his past and his present and what he sees as his impending future, if he's beginning to look at the whole of who he is. He says, I'm Simon Peter. And Simon was the name he was given at birth. It was the name that his biological parents gave him. It's the name that he lived with until the day that he confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Savior and the Lord. When he confessed faith in Jesus as the Savior, Jesus gave him a new name. Jesus began to call him Peter. And so as he looks at his past and his present and his future, he sees the complexity of who he is as a person. He sees both the man that he was born and he also sees the man that he is becoming because of the grace and the work of Jesus Christ in his life. And I love that he has said Simon Peter. It's almost this, this vulnerable, invitational moment where he's laying himself out in front of his readers rather than being this great mythological figure, the great Peter the one who walked with Jesus, the one who did all of these crazy wild things for the first century church, the one who's leading us, the one whose voice carries almost more weight than anyone else in the, the living day of the first century church. And he says to you, I remember who I was, I know who I am, and I know what he is making of me. I am I'm Simon Peter. And we know that as Simon, he's a guy who, who had a lot of struggles. He was a guy who, uh, who, while he would make some bold and big claims, would often fall on his face and fall hard, wouldn't he? And he recognizes this in the ways that he just kind of says, look, I know who I am. And I know that almost like his counterpart, Paul, in Romans 7, I know that I haven't always done things right. The things that I should do, I don't always do. The things I know to do, I, I don't always do those. And the things I know not to do, sometimes I do them. I mess up. I'm, I'm Simon, but I'm also, I'm also Peter. There's a before and an afterness that is at work as he describes himself or as he defines himself before his, his readers. And one, one writer pictured this. He said that all of this makes Peter a really great companion and a great teacher for all of his fellow believers because it's giving us permission to recognize ourselves as imperfect people. The people we were, the people who Jesus is making us and all that he intends to do in and through us. And so he gives two names here, and I think that's interesting. He doesn't just give that, but now he gives two titles. He says, I'm a bondservant and I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
In other words, I am a, a leader of the church by the commission of Jesus. I'm, you know, I know that I'm one of the biggest voices in the church today, but I also know who my master is, and I'm nothing more than a servant. I'm nothing more than a bond slave of Jesus. The one who, who is over all things is the one who actually washed my feet. And so I know that I'm only his servant, and if he can wash my feet, then I know I am most like him when I am bowing before others. So he says, I'm Simon Peter full of guilt and full of grace, and I am both an apostle called to lead, and I am also a bondservant of Jesus called to bow and called to come under you and to serve you and to hold you up. And so he's unpacking who he is, and it's, it's just like layered in there almost implicitly. He's unpacking in the midst of all of the trouble, of all of the chaos, of all of the, 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 the I mean, absolute awfulness and wickedness that he's seeing in his day, And in light of the knowing that his death is imminent, verse 14, he says, I know who I am, and I'm going to be open with you about who I am. I know where I stand with God, and I know what he's doing in my life. And I'm going to be very clear about this. And he says, I'm writing to those who have received a faith that's the same kind as mine. Those who have received a faith by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so after he's described himself, he's giving this implicit invitation for you and I or for his early readers and us today to answer that same question, where is God in the midst of the chaos and who am I to him? Do you see that kind of laying out for us? He says, I know who I am and I know what God is doing to those who have received the same faith as I have. See if you can answer this question. I think it's an important question to start with because as we face all kinds of troubles in our life, whether they are relational or they are political or they are health or they are financial or they are whatever brokenness and chaos is marking us in this moment, the biggest trouble that we've ever had in our life is with God. Did you know that? The biggest problem that you ever had was a problem with the God of the universe, the God who made everything. We read this in the Bible. Colossians 1 tells us that we were once alienated from God and we were enemies with God and there was nothing that we could do about that. In fact, this morning, add this to it. This morning I was reading Ephesians 2 and it says, remember, remember that formerly you were, at, you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenant of promise. You had no hope and you were without God in the world. There's nothing you could do about it. Then it says, but now in Christ, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Romans 5 says this. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Understand, whatever problems you faced, the biggest problem you ever faced was that you were an enemy of God. That was the biggest problem that you ever face and any person ever faces. And it's a problem that you can do nothing, nothing about. And yet the scriptures declare because God loved you, he sent his son to do what you could not do and to bring reconciliation and forgiveness, to bring those who are far off near to God. And once that problem has been solved, once that problem has been settled, things get really good, not perfect, but really good because you're not on your own anymore. Does that make sense? You've been brought close to God and God will begin to help and will begin to help you face everything that you have to face in this life. So the first, the first thing that we do when we see trouble, we should do, we should ask the question, am I right with God? 
which sounds like an old school question. You can picture an old school preacher in a suit and sweating, and I'm almost sweating. I'm wearing a jacket. This is my mistake today. Sweating and shaking his hand saying, are you right with God? And you can picture somebody knocking on your door. Remember these, these old days, people would knock on your door and you'd open the door and they would say, do you know where you're going to go if you die today? Are you right with God today? And it's an old school kind of question, but it is the right question because Paul, or Peter, see I did it. Peter says, we're talking about a righteousness here. In other words, do you have a right standing with God? Or, or when God looks at you, does God say, yes, you are exactly in the right place with me? Not that you are perfect, but that in Christ you are perfectly accepted by God, so you are in the right place. Notice Peter says to have that right place, that righteousness, it's something that you must receive. Somebody say receive. 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 It's not something that you learn or you earn. It's something you must receive. Here's Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. To those who have, Peter says, those who have received the same kind of faith. Not those who mustered up the same kind of faith. Not those who got smart, got educated, and suddenly had the kind of faith as me, but those who received the same kind of faith as me. How'd you receive it? By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not something that can be learned or earned. It must be received. It's a gift. John 1.12 says this, but as many who have received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who received him, they became children of God, even to those who believe his name. Now understand, this is the difference between Christianity and all of the, all of the world religions. This is, this is it here. Peter tells us, and he makes it very clear, that it is something that we receive, not learn or earn. It's something that we receive by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Whose righteousness is it? Yeah, well, whose righteousness is it? Yeah, that's, that's it. That's a good answer. We'll do it one more time. Whose righteousness is it? Because three times and we won't forget that. It's Jesus' righteousness. It's not ours. It's not something that we can earn or learn. It's not something that we can prove about ourselves. He is righteous and I am unrighteous. He is holy and I am unholy. Do you get the picture? He is one with the Father and I am separate from the Father apart from Him. And if you want righteousness, if you want reconciliation, if you want life and life abundant, if you want peace, if you want joy, if you want satisfaction, it's not something that you can order on Amazon and it's not something that you can pick up at Costco. It's not something that you can take a class on and suddenly you have it and it can't come because you attended church three out of four weeks in a month. Thank you for being here, but that's not how you get it. It's something that you have to receive that Jesus does for you because he's the perfect one. So from a, per a perspective... This is kind of a fascinating thought because I think we're so convinced by the, the I don't know if it's the, the influence of the world or it's the influence, it is a spiritual warfare thing. It's the influence maybe of, in some ways, our parents and our teachers and our coaches and the culture that we live in. We feel like we have to earn this. We feel like we have to work for this. And in a way, it's an interesting perspective that we, it's that we are saved by works. It's just that Jesus does all of the work. You get that? We're saved by works, but it's Jesus who does every bit of the work. He's the son of God who became a man and he lived a perfect life that we couldn't live. And he died on a cross so that our sins would be covered and he rose from the dead so that our sins would be taken away and we could have new life. 
He did all of the work and we got all of the rewards. Do you see that? That's what Martin Luther called the great exchange. The fact that we do nothing to experience, to, to get salvation. We do nothing to get forgiveness. We do nothing to, to get reconciliation with God, to get a new life, to get restoration, to get redemption. We don't, we don't do anything except fall upon the grace of Jesus Christ who has done everything for us. So Peter, he looks out at the landscape of the first century and, and the Roman Empire and all of the wickedness and all of the, the awful things that they're facing. And he's writing to Christians as, as his intended audience. And he says, most importantly, above all else, I want you to consider what is God doing in your life and where do you stand with God? And he does so simply by saying, because I know who I am. I am Simon who has fallen Again and again and again. And every time I try in my strength, I, what, I sink beneath the waves. That's who Simon is. Every time I try in my own strength, I grab a sword instead of bowing and serving. That's who Simon is. But in Christ, I am Peter. And I know there's a promise that he is doing a work in my life and through my life. He is building his church through people who confess Jesus is Lord. And he's not done with me. So I know who I am. And I'm telling you today, I'm writing to people who are like me. You're imperfect, but you're perfectly accepted. And I want you to remember that before you face any of the troubles of this life. And now, if you can wrestle with that question and begin to look at all of the trouble that is stacked up in front of you, now you can begin to turn to the Lord. You remember our phrase, from not for, that we use around here a lot? I say that a lot, from not for. You can look at all of the trouble. And you begin to posture yourself or ready yourself to face whatever lies ahead. And now you remember, I don't go and face these, these things from or, or uh, for God's acceptance. I don't go and do good things for God's love or for endurance. I don't get smarter so that, so that I will be this man of God. But instead, I recognize that in Christ, I'm already loved. I'm already accepted. I'm already cared for. I'm already received. I'm not alone, and because I'm not alone, that changes my posture. It changes the way I see things. I look again, and I go, oh, okay, but God is on my side. When I know that I'm already loved and cared for, from that place, I can begin to face things in a new way, with a new strength, with a, a, new, a, new, a new way of perceiving the world. And here's what Peter writes. He says, you should face these things with what you've been given. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything. Somebody say everything. everything. You've been given everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. He's saying that if you are in Christ, if you have received the same kind of faith as his by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, then you've been given everything that you need, not to go around it, not to go over it, not to go under it, but to go through it, whatever it is. And I, I think for a lot of church people, when they come to think about their relationship with Jesus and the things that we talk about, it's easier for a lot of us to believe that Jesus has given us everything that we need pertaining to faith in heaven. 
not to life and godliness. Everything that we need to pay, pertaining to faith and heaven, that he has enough to fill that compartment of our life. But Peter doesn't say that, does he? Peter says, in Christ, you have been given everything that you need for life and everything that it throws at you and to walk through it in a godly way or to walk through it in a way that honors the Lord. Some people think that Jesus is too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. But Peter says, oh no, everything that you're going to face in this life, you have been covered, you have been supplied, you have been empowered to face it in Jesus Christ. So what have we been given? That would be the big question. Because I have, what, work problems or marriage problems or friend problems or problems with my brother or problems with my kids or problems with I don't know who I am and I'm always struggling to, like, prove myself to the world or there, I've got problems. What have I been given to face those things and go through it? Because I want to believe that that's true. So Peter says, first, what you've been given is a new you. Just like he said, I'm Simon Peter. I'm not the person I was. Paul would say it, you know, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, right? You've been given a new you. It's not a perfect you, but it's a you who is becoming, becoming like Jesus. The Holy Spirit is doing that in your life. He's making you like Jesus, that you would see the world like Jesus, that you would see the problems the way Jesus saw them, that your heart would begin to feel about the brokenness the way Jesus' heart felt, and that you would have the kind of strength that Jesus had to endure to persevere, to continue on, that, that that strength would be in you. And Peter outlines there are at least four things here that he says in the first four verses. There are at least four things that are true about the new you that help you to go through it. And the first thing is that you have a new leader. You have a new Lord. You have a new leader. His name is Jesus. He's the one who's over all things. And he's your highest authority. He's the one that Colossians says, all things are held together by the power of his hand. And the implication is if, if you're in Christ, then the one who holds all things by the power of his hand, he loves you and he's for you and he gives to you and the things that he gives to you and the things that he has for you are the things that are best for you and he will supply everything that you need. Before you met Jesus, let me ask you this, before you met Jesus, who was your Lord? He said, me, that's right. Before you met Jesus, you were your own Lord. And as you looked at life, you said, what do I want? And what do I think? What do I need? What do I think this situation demands? What can I handle? What will I do? But Peter says, you have a new leader. You're not on your own anymore. You have one before you who Jesus says about himself, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. And I will lead you through this life. I will lead you through everything that you face. I will help you to see the things that are in front of you, to reason differently about them, and to guide you through those things. In other words, he says, I've got a new way of, of thinking if you'll just follow me. And that's the second thing Peter says is, is you have a new mind. When Jesus is your leader, when you're in Christ, you have a new mind. This mind is marked by not the philosophies of man, not the clever schemes of the marketing departments, not, not the best that you can come up with your education, but it's marked by the knowledge of God. Verse 3, he has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through 
the true knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. In other words, by the Holy Spirit we share in the mind of Christ. Do you hear that? By the work of the Holy Spirit you share in the mind of Christ that you might see the world the way Jesus saw it, that you might think about the world of Jesus the way, same, same way that Jesus thought about it. It means you start to think differently. That means when you see the troubles, you see the challenges, you see the problems, you look at them and you go, you know what? None of these things are God over me. None of these things have final say over my life. None of these things have power over my life. I know who God is and I know who I am. I know who God is, and I know who I am, so I know what I'm to do and what I'm not to do. I think differently because I have a true knowledge that's marking my life. I'm not fooled into thinking that everyone who claims to have power should have power. I'm not fooled into believing that everyone has power is right or righteous, or I should believe what they say and follow their words. But the one who has power over all things because he is God is my leader and I share in his mind so I don't see the same anymore. I don't reason the same way anymore. When I see a problem, I don't, I don't run or I don't try to bulk up in my strength and go through it, but I begin to see like Jesus and I begin to have faith in his plans and his promises for me. This is what 1 Corinthians 2 says. Uh, Paul says this here. He says, a natural man. And he's talking about a person who's not a Christian, like, like Peter when he was only Simon, right? A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, for who has known the mind of the Lord? But we have the mind of Christ. He says that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, gives us the ability to see like Jesus, he says in, in Corinthians, we're told that, that I, my, people think I'm crazy, but the fact is I, my heart, my mind is controlled by the love of Christ, so I no longer see according to the flesh. I now see like Jesus sees, and it's a power that the Holy Spirit gives us to not see with natural eyes, but to see with spiritual eyes. And that power is a third thing that Peter says that we have. We have a new power in our life. He says it's a divine power that's at work in our life. In verse 3, seeing that his divine power is unleashed in your life when you come to saving faith in Jesus. That his divine power is unleashed in your life. And remember Jesus promised this. He promised his followers the day would come that the Holy Spirit would come and live within them. That he would empower them. That he would help them. That he would guide them to do things that they could not do. To be the people that God calls them to be and to walk in faithfulness to God in this life. Ephesians 3 says this. It's not our power that carries us through life. It's his. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ever ask or think according to the power that works within us. There's a power that works within the Christian. And that power, friends, is the same power that created the earth. Like, let's not make any mistakes. It is the exact same power that parted a Red Sea and that shut a lion's mouth and that crushed a giant before uh, just a little human man. It is the same power that allowed God to come to earth to live a sinless life, to do miracles, to rise from the grave that we would have life in his name. It is that same power that, as it, that is fully at work in the life of the believer. It's not a shade of the power. It's not another, you know, power that God gives a trickle of. It is the fullness of the power of God that is at work in your life that is able to do far more abundantly beyond anything that you could ever think or ask. That's what this says to us. So you begin to get the sense that 
2 Corinthians 5 isn't joking when it says if you're in Christ, you're a whole new creature. (laughs) You have a new leader guiding you through life. You have a new mind, a new way of seeing and reasoning and thinking through all of the situations of your life, a new way of seeing God, a new way of seeing the world, and a new way of seeing yourself. And you have a new power. You're not going on, on, on unleaded gas. You're going on divine power here. That means that there is nothing that can stop the plans and purposes of God when he wills something in and in your life and through your life, which means you are a, a whole new creature. It means you have a, a whole new nature about you, which is the, the fourth thing that Peter outlines. He says you now have a new nature. You're not this natural man or woman. You're not this natural person. For by these, verse 4, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become, now this is huge, that you may become partakers. Another way of saying that is partners or sharers that you may participate in the divine nature i mean this is this is i mean what jesus said when he said i'm the vine you're the branches abide in me bear much fruit it's not you go and grow fruit it's abide in me and my life through you will bear much fruit being a participant in the divine nature is what jesus promised when in john 14 he said my spirit will come another helper like me, and he will be with you always helping to comfort you. He will give you counsel. He will give you wisdom. He will show you the truth. He will give you power so that our old nature is defeated, so that we're no longer the people we once were, but that is being changed day by day because we are, we are living in this new nature, Peter says, that has escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust meaning our desires change. They change because we have had a taste of real satisfaction. We've had some moments of real life. We've seen real glory. We've experienced true grace and true love. And the Holy Spirit keeps feeding that appetite for for being truly satisfied in Christ which means our appetite for the junk of this world begins to to dissipate and we're no longer enslaved to our old nature because we now have an appetite for something greater. He He keeps feeding this nature so that when we look at the world and the troubles, we remember, I'm not on my own. I'm being renewed day by day. I'm not on my own. I have the presence and the the fullness of the power of God, the Holy Spirit, here with me. And what that means uh, on a very practical level when we face trouble in this life, it's the things that are impossible for you are possible for you with the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? So there are days when you're like, I just don't think I could ever forgive them. The things that they've said, the things that they have done, I could never forget and I could never forgive. And the Holy Spirit says, I can and I will. Rest in me. And then there are days you say, I can't do this anymore. I cannot endure one more day of suffering. And the Holy Spirit says, I can and I will. And I'll give you everything that you need. Rest in me. And then there are days you go, I will never learn my lesson. I keep tripping and falling over the same thing. I'll never overcome temptation. He goes, trust in me. Rest in me. 
I'm with you, and I will supply everything that you need. You can't do it on your own. You're right. But you are not on your own. The things that are impossible for you are possible for you with the Holy Spirit, which means life plus the Holy Spirit, you plus the Holy Spirit, it's an entirely different thing. It's an entirely different life. And faith, faith is saying, I see the problems, I see the pressures, I see the chaos, I see the brokenness. And when I see it, I turn to God and I say, thy will be done. And I look again and suddenly I see things differently. I see things differently because I'm not my own. I see things differently because I have a leader who has walked through it all, who endured suffering and shame, who died and rose again to give me new life. And I follow him and he gives me a new way of seeing and thinking. He gives me a new mind, right? He gives me a new power so the things I could never do can be done in his strength. He gives me a new nature. I'm not what I was. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Peter calls that the divine nature and power of being at work in your life. And here's the point. The point is, for these first century readers and for us today, the world's hard and it's going to get harder. It'll get worse before it gets better. This is for sure. But God is working in you. God is working for you. God is working with you. And God is working through you. So when you see the trouble, the very first thing that you've got to ask is, what is God doing and where do I stand with him? The question is, have you received, have you received from Jesus salvation and life by his righteousness? If you have, the good news is that God has called you his own. He looks at you as his child. He doesn't leave you alone. The promise is the Holy Spirit is with you always, guiding you, helping you, comforting you, empowering you to become like Jesus and giving you everything that you need for life and godliness, everything. So if you're in Christ, the good news, it's there. And maybe like Ephesians 1, we just need to pray, Lord, would you open the eyes of my heart that I would see all of the things that you've already placed in my life, that I would live in them and live by them in this life. Amen? The next question then is whatever's in front of you, will you face it with all that you've been given? Because I'm afraid that there are way too many of us. The evidence is, is out there on us. There are way too many of us facing the troubles of this world with human ideas and human strength out of a human, broken human nature and not with the things that has been given to us for life and godliness. You see it. We make messes of all of these things. When we rest in our strength, when we rest with the philosophies of men, when we follow other leaders than Christ, and when we try to do it on our own, we make a mess of stuff. And I'm afraid that's the, the path that too many Christians and too many churches are trusting in. Words that say we depend on you, but lives that say I depend on me. So what trouble are you facing right now? And what, what's, the, what's the beef you have? What's the problem? Are you facing it with everything that you've been given? Does it feel impossible? Do you feel defeated? Because you've tried to tackle it on your own or you read a book that had some clever human ideas and you're like, if I could just apply these 15 things, my life would be great today. And then it didn't work and you go, I don't understand. Why did it not work? Are you facing the troubles that we see in front of us with all that we've been given? 
with a leader who bowed and died and resurrected, proving who he was. With a mind that is not being conformed to the patterns of this world, but is being transformed and renewed day by day by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. By a power that is beyond yours and by a nature that has been given to you that is called a divine nature that you share in the very nature of God because you're a child of God. Are you facing life at all, all that you've been given? Can I pray for you this morning? God, we come this morning to you. And as we recognize our daily battles are not simply human battles, but spiritual battles, would you remind us of that day by day that we don't face simply human battles with flesh and blood, but we face spiritual battles that demand from us a full reliance and dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you are God. And you are with us and you are supplying us with everything that we need for life and godliness. You have given us tools to fight with, weapons to fight with for your glory and for your good plan. Would you forgive us for thinking too much of ourselves and too little of you? Would you forgive us for the sin of of omission, of omitting your presence and power in our life? And would you teach our hearts, would you teach our souls to trust that you are here and you're supplying us. One, so that we can endure as Jesus endured, that we would enjoy the glory that Jesus engloried, but more so that the effect of Jesus that brings life and peace would be shared through us. And if we're going to share in the divine nature, that that would be also sharing in the life-giving nature, the declaring of the gospel nature of Jesus into this world. Would you help us to be a people who aren't crushed by the darkness, but a people who walk as the light in the darkness. In Jesus' name. Amen.